0: You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Hey everybody, this is Jason Wilson with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Thanks for tuning in again. Uh, Today I am joined uh, with my good friend, colleague, and mentor, uh, Dr. Anthony Smith. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, sitting down with me today.
1: Thanks, Jason. It's good to be back together talking about stuff.
0: The dynamic cannabis science duo and how (laughs) um so uh, for those that um aren't familiar with who you are and your work do you mind just really briefly um just kind of describing um some of your science background and how you got into um doing some of the cannabis science work that you're doing now
1: sure um right now um Working on analytical chemistry, both for safety and quality control and product development um, and also in industrial manufacturing Mm. um, in the cannabis and hemp space. My background, uh, let's see, I always have had a passion for human health and physiology and I got a biology degree um, back in the 90s um, and thought... Maybe I might want to do pre-med. Yeah. But uh just I don't that was just not for me. Um so I went to grad school um at Oregon State University and uh became again super passionate about uh biochemistry. Uh, specifically worked on uh the molecular and biochemical aspects of aging in mm-hmm. the cardiovascular system. Um and also Um, mostly because my work uh, was at the Linus Pauling Institute. Uh, Part of our mission always is to uh, look at uh, nutritional supplements and vitamins um, as they relate to, you know, biochemistry, aging, cancer, etc. So that fit in well, uh, you know, with my interest in in health. Uh, So, uh, you know, on top of all that, I'm Academically, I'm pretty passionate about um, herbal medicine. Mm. Um, I would say like nutritional chemistry, uh, especially as it relates to human health and performance. Uh, I've worked um, after grad school um, as a consultant with quite a few different nutraceutical manufacturers, uh, both doing um, chemistry and quality control, in, as it relates to product development, uh, but also published research, uh, doing basic pharmacokinetics uh, for like over-the-counter dietary supplements.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and can you explain to people what uh, pharmacokinetics is?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a it's a big big thing in in drug development and drug validation. But uh, on the dietary supplement side, there's a fair bit of this kind of work. It's, it's looking at uh, the level of either a compound or its metabolites um, as it passes through your body. And mm-hmm. complete pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, uh, you know, is a physical tracing of the entire mass of a dose of something that mm-hmm. you eat. And you uh, would account for, you know, every milligram that you take, how what your body does with it and, and where it comes out, essentially. Yeah. Uh, basic pharmacokinetics uh, for a dietary supplement would be um, maybe you take um, Oregon grape supplement and then every hour or two, uh, depending on like how we presume what happens to that, to berberine in your body maybe we would collect blood every hour or two for the course of a day or maybe even two days and and look at the level of in in the case of Oregon grape berberine in your bloodstream and how it goes up and back down over time Mm -hmm. and uh depending on uh partly your genetic tone but also the chemistry of you know whatever compound we're talking about um you know the the the, the peak area or the peak amount of that compound in your bloodstream, uh, it might happen very fast and then go away slowly, or it might build very slowly and then peak later, uh, just completely depends.
0: Nice. Well, I know, um, there's a lot of, uh, pharmacokinetic pharmacodynamic work that's trying to be done now on cannabinoids to try to understand, um, kind of how they move through the body. because um, one thing that, uh, a lot of people are unaware of is that cannabinoids aren't very bioavailable in the body, um, primarily because they're kind of fatty, and um, that causes a, a number of issues with the body. They tend to get bound in the blood really quickly, um, and uh, like basically glucose will adhere to, to some of those compounds, make these, um, these conjugate compounds that then just kind of get excreted. Um, I think sometimes because especially THC rich cannabis, because it elicits, uh, um, you know, that, um, euphoric effect or intoxicating effect, um, that's presumed that it's very um, active in the body very, um, bioavailable. Um, but, um, research is kind of showing that it's not really the case.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that stems, I think from, um, you know like the the binding kinetics if you will of thc and its metabolites to cb1 receptors is that um very tiny tiny amounts mm-hmm. uh that make it uh through the blood brain barrier are plenty enough to in- elicit <laughs> yeah. the the classic thc euphoria i mean um i think anandamide is the the typical endogenous mm-hmm. uh cannabinoid that would stimulate that receptor and um you know, a handful of molecules uh, in your brain is more than enough uh, to (laughs) to get that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's really fascinating how little it actually takes, um, to elicit some pretty profound, uh, changes to, um, uh, consciousness and everything. Um, so, so these days you're doing a lot of, um, cannabis testing and that's, that's how you and I, um, kind of originally came together, helping, uh, Um, build up labs and get methods um, um, developed and validated and everything. Uh, One thing I want to make sure we spend some time on talking about is I think a question that's on a lot of people's minds that are in the cannabis industry is how does a lab know that their results are accurate? Um, Because it's pretty well known at this point that uh, depending on what lab you go to, you can get very different results, um, especially with potency and that's kind of its own issue, but even with things like pesticides and things that, you know, really affect public health and safety. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what labs do to prove to themselves that their own results are accurate? And then, um, stemming from that, what consumers can do to kind of, um, um, evaluate labs so they can trust the results they're getting.
1: Sure. Absolutely. Uh, it's a subject near and dear to my heart. Um, I, I guess I'll maybe answer that a little bit in reverse is that, yeah. you know, as a, as a consumer of what labs have to offer, you know, as a, if you're a cannabis or hemp farmer or manufacturer, um, one thing I always encourage people to pay attention to if you're shopping for labs or meeting labs is, you know, you really should be looking for a lab that you can have as a business to business relationship mm. with. And that would begin by, you know, when you tour a lab, um, or even talk to their principals, um, you know, on the telephone. Like, there's no black arts in a laboratory, (laughs) Um, you know, and so there's no like secret curtain. Yeah. Um, There's there's honestly nothing super super proprietary. Right. Right. Or uh, I mean, there's a lot of high tech stuff. Um, mm-hmm. and, and what we do is tedious and difficult. That's why everyone doesn't do it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not because it's you know, magic, magic or yeah. proprietary. Yeah. And so, you know, you should get that feeling when you go to a lab, like these are our instruments. Uh, these are our trained staff. Here are some of our, you know, records. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we make data in a process. And just like if you have a factory full of robots and machines and and humans, in order to get that factory output right, uh, there has to be a lot of traceability and a lot of control and a Mm -hmm. lot of communication. And these are the same sort of things. I mean, it, it, I don't say data factory because we don't actually manufacture data, but <laughs> yeah. uh, the the word for it in the lab space is that we we do data realization. realization yeah, okay, yeah. so data realization is not um, squirting stuff into machines and then um, issuing PDFs to people. It's <laughs> it's a it's a it's a tedious process that has uh, tons of built-in traceability. Um, and controls and checks um and when you go to a laboratory, quality should be visible. Mm-hmm. Uh, the lab should be clean, it should be organized uh the people you know should be wearing what you would consider typical uh laboratory uh lab coats uh gloves, eye mm-hmm. protection, things like that, so you know that they're serious about their profession uh there should be. Um, training manuals mm-hmm. uh, posted. Um, there should be logs, uh, log books next to things like scales and instruments, mm-hmm. right? Um, those are some of the early signs that that there maybe is quality happening in the lab. Um, beyond that, you know what, what we're doing in the lab um, in the back, if you will, you know, I'd mentioned um, traceability. So mm-hmm. traceability is a very, very important part of quality assurance. Uh, you know, in manufacturing, but, you know, especially over here in doing lab work too. And what we mean by traceability is that, um, you know, uh, businesses and regulators do stuff with our data Mm -hmm. that, you know, our data validates that materials are okay for commerce or public consumption. And so um, that data, when it goes out into the world um, as a, as a, as an iso and orlap accredited laboratory we need to make sure that all of the reagents and chemicals that were in the laboratory that went into making that data happen um that you know that they're validated and and we know where we got them and, they're pure. and that they're pure uh similarly with the humans that touch samples and computers and instruments Um, you know, we have to have traceable records that the people that participated in data realization, uh, are trained Mm -hmm. to the latest procedures, um, that, that we've done what we call demonstrations of capability. They're sort of like bench checks of their precision. Um, similarly that there's records that instruments, uh, are calibrated, um, and that, you know, any certificate of analysis that we put out there, um, if any of that information is ever in question, um, we can do a quick audit and tell you every person who was a part of the data realization process, every batch of chemicals and standards, um, every instrument and what its status was. Mm-hmm. Um, traceability goes the other direction too. So so um, I just described how we understand everything that goes into our certificates right. of analysis. But um, imagine a case where one of our vendors calls us someday and, oh, we had an accident in the lab and we shipped you this chemical or that solvent and um, it was the wrong stuff or it was the wrong purity.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: so yeah. we have to now go and look forward into any data that we've realized with that material, right? So. It, it's uh, traceability in both directions. Um, and, and that's pretty much the foundation of how you manage quality is, one, understanding everything that goes into your process and, and
0: Being in Being able to trace it back, yeah. Uh, uh,
1: another part of quality um, and what you should be looking for is a lab should be doing what's called proficiency tests. Mm. There's a array of, of formal and informal ways to do that. We do both. Um, our laboratories participate in third party external proficiency tests uh, so these are um you know chemistry and biology companies that provide uh, benchmarked standardized material that they will ship to a lab um and you are blinded to um the quantitative amount of analytes that are in it mm-hmm. um but 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 you know oh this is a cannabinoid um proficiency test or this is a you know what to test a for pesticide proficiency test yeah and so in the pesticide proficiency test uh we'll receive like um ground hemp or um sometimes it's made in the state uh so sometimes it's ground cannabis and then we get a vial of liquid which contains an unknown amount and quantity of pesticides which we're required to spike on there
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, perform our assay and then report those qualitative results uh back And you know you either pass or fail, right? You have to get Mm -hmm. all the analytes. Generally, these studies are done um, with groups of labs, Um, so you have to be typically within like one standard deviation of the the actual answer. Mm -hmm. Um, So, a lab should, you know, a lot of them, a lot of labs are actually required to do PT tests. But it should be something the lab is proud about, um, and you should definitely ask your lab about how they do their PTs right. and when and how they perform. That's, that's the, the, the primary external benchmark that we have for what we call accuracy.
0: Yeah, you don't want to run into a lab that is uh, nervous about sharing uh, their participation in a PT.
1: Yeah, absolutely not. Um, I don't, I don't know why you would want to. They're, they're um they're hard to accomplish and it's it's really like the only external thing that we have. Yeah. Um we do a, a form of um internal PTs like be- between our own laboratories but also with collegial mm-hmm. um uh, I guess competitor laboratories.
0: Kind of a more um, uh, casual round robin uh type we,
1: of Exactly. We'll agree on a, on a on a on a on a way or a method to produce some homogeneous material and then like distribute it um uh, amongst our different labs. And then uh compare the data for our mm-hmm. own purposes and that that's a good way to actually quantitate uh what what we call you know calculation of uncertainty mm-hmm. um, uncertainty uh, it's a statistical term, and it's sort of a it's roughly a, a balance of uh, a measurement of your accuracy, but also precision right right and precision is something. Um, a little different, but also important. So, when you just do one test on something called a PT, you're either accurate or you're not. You know, right. that, that's a shot you on hit, target, hit the target, and or not. you hit the target on the bullseye or not, or yeah. some distance from it, which is acceptable or not. Uh, precision would be um, something that we generally measure in house, and it would be a repeated preparation and measure of the same thing over and over. And it would be for the goal of measuring the precision, maybe of a trainee or a, or a technician, mm-hmm. but it also can be a measurement of uh, precision of like an instrument yeah. Um, and also just the overall process. Uh, a lot of times we'll do precision measurements um, by having, like I mentioned, a, a trainee prep five or 10 of the same exact thing and then measure them on the mm-hmm. instrument and see the difference. Um, but then we'll also have that done on different days um, at different temperatures and,
0: um, yeah, you know, get a full see, sense see what of...
1: kind of variation happens, not just from uh, the technician's thumb, but also from the instrument and, you know, the mm-hmm. whole environment of the laboratory.
0: Yeah, and I imagine that can get kind of complex to um, calculate together because you have uncertainty around things like pipetting. You have uncertainty around the ways the instrument injects. You have uncertainty around temperature fluctuations that affect things like density of liquids um, that you're working with, um, even variation related to sampling, um, which is really a big one because if sampling is not performed, um, well, it kind of depends on what the purpose of the testing is, but if the purpose of the testing is to get some sort of quasi-representative Uh, value that's supposed to represent a batch of something, then the sampling error becomes a really big deal.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And when you're, when you're benchmarking something like uh, pesticides or residual Mm -hmm. solvents, or even uh, microbiology contamination, um, they're generally produced by, you know, what's called a spike. Like Mm -hmm. we're going to add Um, x milligrams of pyrethrin to x grams of marijuana and so you have this calculated theoretical there is a known answer Mm -hmm. yeah Uh, but when we do um, pts for cannabinoids especially what we call in matrix or actual cannabis that that's ground up uh, to be homogeneous and then sent to different labs you know, there's no true answer. There's not a magic machine that knows those right. cannabinoids, right? That's an unknown material. It's not of a perfect answer. Comp- this yeah. is
0: 25% THC, absolutely.
1: Yeah, that's not known. I mean, yeah. the only way to know that would be to measure it and well, we're all measuring it. So there is not a universal measurement to, to know that any more than, than what we do. And in those cases, uh, the actual or you know presumed accurate answer it comes out of the study it's Mm -hmm. essentially the study mean or Mm -hmm. thereabouts
0: well i think that's something that a lot of people don't necessarily realize is that they're um and this is true for all sorts of analytical testing that when you're dealing with natural products even if you get a flower sample grind it to a pulp where it's a a powder like sand almost um and you test that you're still going to get um, some variation um, and there's still some like minor amounts of heterogeneity even even in that um, in that bit and um, sometimes people get really worked up and you and I have both experienced this directly they get really really worked up when they expect their cannabis flowers to be some certain potency and then it comes out different and sometimes that difference from what they've expected is only a couple clicks a couple percentage points off of their expectations but because um you know the way cannabis is being priced is oftentimes indexed on THC or now also CBD depending on on the market um you know those couple of clicks can really piss some people off and um it's uh they don't tend to react very well to the um to the fact that you know well there's we could test this 10 different times, and you're going to see some, you know, the numbers dance around kind of a common mean or median uh, point. Um, and so, yeah, your flower may come out 20%. If I test it now, if I test it again, it may come out 18.5, it may come out 21.5. Um, and that doesn't mean that any of those tests were inaccurate or wrong. It's just there's this variance related to the natural heterogeneity of. The natural product that's being tested
1: it is for the most part variation in the natural product um, and, and again kind of going back to if you're shopping or or looking for labs um, this is something a, a lab should be able to show you too is that you know you've mentioned that there's variation in the you know the injection precision of the right. instrument in the in the pipetting of small volumes by technicians and That's why we're continuously, you know, performing repeated QC measurements like that uh, of our technicians, of Mm -hmm. our instruments, because, um, you know, when you come into the lab and I want to convince you that, you know, you should have a relationship with our laboratory and and do work here. um, You know, my presumption is that just trying to impress you and say, I have a fancy degree and fancy (laughs) instruments is, is not really going to cut it. What, what we what i really want to say is that you know we measure our precision um and we know what that is and we're happy to show you how we measure it me- measure it mm-hmm. and 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 give you that you know sometimes it's bad news that if i test your same product over and over again over the course of a week it it probably varies in our lab uh as much as probably 5 or 6% um difference right um, and that's and,
0: different than percentage points. Correct. I want to make clear to people because sometimes, uh, especially in this industry, when we talk about percentages, uh, those two ideas get conflated. So you're talking about five or six percent total. So if you had um, if something was coming out at 200 milligrams per gram or just to make it easy, 100 milligrams per gram, you're saying that it may come out um, 95 milligrams per gram or 105 milligrams per gram that's the type of variance you're looking at
1: yeah absolutely um and then when you take that down to you know thc which is around 20 percent um yeah it that would vary a point or two in either direction and that's normal uh precision of our process yeah um so you know there's definitely factors uh so that's our say five percent that we contribute to error Mm -hmm. and then really like the rest is on uh back to the homogeneity of the material yeah and you know laboratories the ideal sample for a laboratory is a a a pure granular powder Mm -hmm. that is completely homogeneous and every time i test a bit of it it is exactly the same. Right. So any variance I get in the data is the sum of variance in, again, measurement, pipetting, I- injection. Uh, but you know, cannabis is not that. Uh, it's you know, if we're talking about cannabis flower, it's it's sold as a flower. Like mm-hmm. if you test a hundred milligram bit uh, that you cut out of the stem versus a hundred milligram bit you cut out of the the calyx those are going to have vastly different thc um yeah and uh a laboratory you know they their goal or or their charge i guess uh sometimes by law is that you know they need to test material as it's sold right right so um there's been much debate and in, in, dis- in discussion about you know the lab should trim the bud, um, <laughs> yeah. and I get that that's a, that's a part of rolling a joint. But um, you know, to the laboratory, yeah, it's cannabis, but it's it's produce, yeah, right, and it, and it's produce in bulk. Um, so it's you know, it, it would be misrepresentative for the lab to to trim out like the, the all the
0: extra leaf, the and... extra
1: leaf, and just make this really pristine sample. And I understand that sort of maybe what happens when people prepare the material for uh, bong hits or smoking, but you know, it's a, it's a commodity. It's a commodity produce. Um, and we're required to basically test the material as, as given, you know, that's how it goes to market.
0: At least here in Oregon, I know yeah, um, in some States, and we went through this cause you and I were working together when Oregon was kind of uh, going through some major changes in its um, regulations around cannabis testing and everything. But um, there's some states that are kind of, um, that are roughly where Oregon was, you know, four years ago or whatever, um, where producers are allowed to submit samples. There's actually an article that came out very recently about Washington's um, testing program. And a lot of, uh, they basically went through a Um, from my understanding, uh, a pretty big audit um, and found um, one of the issues that was found is that producers are still um, supplying samples to the labs rather than the labs taking the samples themselves. And so you get a lot of um, uh, misrepresentative um, sampling that comes from that, um, as well as um, Washington hasn't um, mandated certain levels of auditing and QC um, that like Oregon has and definitely California. California seems to be going pretty strict um, with testing possibly in in some regards, maybe a little too far. We can talk about that later. Um, <laughs> some of the, some of the action levels or some of the, uh, uh, the limits that they want labs to work with um, are a little intense, um, but um, yeah. What, what advice would you have for, producers that live in states where labs aren't doing the sampling, they're having to do the sampling themselves and they want to try to have an honest representation of their batches. Um, What kind of advice could you give them as far as trying to do the best sampling they can do to get the most representative results for their batch rather than a sort of doctored sample?
1: Um, Well, first of all, uh, you know, there, you're going to need, like some real management commitment that, that that's what they want, right? Because yeah. when there's mandatory required testing and your competitors are hand-selecting samples um, for the purposes of getting the highest what value. they want on the lab report, right. that's not falsification of data, but it might be, you know, sample...
0: Toes into manipulation.
1: <laughs> sample manipulation or, you know it it's it's non representative um if you will of of the bulk commodity, so you know their management of of whatever this company x that we're talking about really needs to be committed that that's what they want and and that's actually normal stuff in a dietary supplement and yeah and even pharmaceutical or even food manufacturing i mean nobody, i mean just
0: basic agricultural testing, like some of my experiences before getting into cannabis was. Um, I was doing a uh, work with um, the BLM in seed collection. and We'd go visit, you know, all of these huge farms that were collecting seed, and they'd have to get seed tested for different things, and you know, dealing with very large batches, and they'd run into these same issues of sure. trying to get um, representative sampling and, and testing and everything for commerce. Right.
1: I mean, you know, the the, the ketchup factory is not, um, you know, sorting through their their, their up to find like the sweetest little jar, um, they, they want one that, that they're going to send off. That's exactly like the batch. Right. And there, you know, there is a lot of value to that in a company, you know, there's there's brand stability and product quality, um, and consistency, but you know, there's also uh manufacturing and cost control benefits to, to, to really wanting homogeneous mm-hmm. production and sampling. Um, so, Assuming uh, you know a manufacturer is is, looking to have this level of quality, um, there's a few different standards out there. I believe the FDA Mm -hmm. has some guidelines for sampling for natural products. They do.
0: The WHO does. The WHO
1: also has guidelines for sampling. uh, I I think herbal medicines or something Mm -hmm. like that, or plant plant derived medicines, and um, they're roughly the same. I mean, it, it it's kind of an algorithm uh, that you must select some level of risk that you're willing to take, mm-hmm. um, which would guide like how many sort of increments you would take from your batch. Um, there's also some statistical um, variable for the number of containers that your batch mm-hmm. is in. Um and then there's a variable for what test you're getting, how much material the lab would actually need. Yeah. If they're running a battery of tests, you know, one increment might be um, you know, 10 or 20 grams of something. Right. And so yeah, I mean, I would start with guidelines like that. Um, and I'd mentioned mm-hmm. risk, uh like with herbal products, um, you know, the this what are the risks? The uh, you know, is that I can't I can it goes both ways, right? If you want to buy a, a, a train car full of echinacea, um, to make a dietary supplement, um, there's risks to your quality control of your product. Mm-hmm. Um, so you probably want to make sure that it doesn't have things like metals or uh, microbial contamination, mm-hmm. dust and filth and, right. and stuff like that. Um, but then, you know, on the manufacturing side, there's also some other risk that you want to manage what with your sampling and testing is then and that probably relates to like maybe what we would call the the potency or the quality of that mm-hmm. echinacea. If you want to make a standardized product, you know, you need to benchmark um how much alkalamide content is in mm-hmm. your echinacea um bulk material before you start putting it into bottles. Um so you take into account those things, and then um, work out this matrix for sampling. It'll tell you basically how many increments and, and from from where in the mm-hmm. container. Maybe it's not a carload. Maybe it's a fifty-five gallon drum or something right. like that. Um, it's not super complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely can be managed, and you know almost no dietary supplement or nutraceutical manufacturers are forced by a regulatory body to get a third party to come and do sampling. Mm -hmm. Um, um,
0: They just require that it's statistically sound um, as far as like GMP rules. Right. Um, It's a very basic statement in there, but it's like, um, and that's, that's why they have those guidelines from the FDA about that. And that's kind of where the, um, the, um, what is it? Uh, one plus the square root of N Right, uh, comes from. It's one of their recommended sampling plans. I, you
1: know, I, I completely understand where regulators are coming from in states where they're requiring um, cannabis labs to physically perform the sample collection as an independent third party. I, I, I think I understand the motivations for that, but you know, honestly, like as a, as a, business owner and manager um it's kind of something i wish that the cannabis and hemp industry would sort of take up on their own just like the dietary supplement and pharmaceutical industry um because it's it's really just a practical reason i mean at the laboratory we focus on making a laboratory a business and there's all sorts of things that we need to figure out to Mm -hmm. make that a business um same thing in other business, you know, cost control, um, training, um, and, and there's a certain level of, you know, skills and things that us, uh, scientists and chemists, um, understand and spend a lot of time and have expertise in, and that's how to make a business of a technical mm-hmm. operation, like realizing data in a laboratory and to add, <clears throat> the need for that business to also have a sampling business, a sampling side. business. And it's a completely separate business. That's like not exactly, you know, in uh, the, a lot of chemistry and lab guys repertoire, because it involves, you know, you know logistics, uh, uh, scheduling and and driving and maps. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's a weird thing to have to add to your lab business. It's not typical, I would say.
0: Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I I totally ag- agree. Um, it was something that um, when I was doing some of that work, I hated. <laughs> I just it's I was, fairly
1: costly, and we have to pass that cost on to clients. I mean,
0: right. And yeah, going back to something you said of wishing that the you know the cannabis industry, uh, whether it be hemp or medical or recreational markets, would kind of um, take that upon themselves. I my hope is that. Um, you know i can i can see right now regulators are super nervous in general about cannabis um the cannabis industries you know going public and you know being legal and everything and they're um putting these really tight some in some states putting these really tight controls on them um and my hope is that after a few years um some of that will kind of calm down and start to settle into more normal um uh, you know, GMP, you know, type, um, operations. And, um, that'll take a while because a lot of cannabis companies are going through a huge learning curve right now because they've either been operating in the black market and are trying to come into the legal market and, um, get acquainted with all of these rules. I mean, a lot of, um, consulting I do with clients around GMP or even like ISO accreditation for labs, you know, this stuff is super new to them as far as just understanding what the FDA um, expects and understanding that like um, in Oregon, the Oregon Department of Ag, you know, when they're looking at food production facilities and everything, you know, they are acting on behalf of the FDA um, doing that work and the yep. FDA contracts them out to do FDA inspections. And I think that's something that people don't realize is that your, your state regulatory bodies, you know, we always think of like, well, the FDA is this thing, and then, you know, the Department of Ag for the state is this, and um, well, you know, the FDA just contracts a lot of that work out to the state agencies, and so having really good relationships with your auditors, um, food safety inspectors, all that sort of thing can go a really long way, um, and my experience is that a lot of regulators are excited to help teach um cannabis companies about um these quality standards and typical business practices they want to see uh, businesses in their states do well and and be um a good example um of how to do things and um and so while I think it's largely a consequence of coming out of the black market or these gray markets that there's a lot of apprehension um about regulators auditors and that, and that sort of thing. Um, but I really encourage people to actually um, get to know your uh, your regulators and uh, people with like uh, the Department of Ag and everything that are going to be doing these inspections on behalf of the FDA. They can they can give you a lot of basically free consulting. Honestly, uh, if you just ask them questions and
1: it's true. And uh, if you leave all those stones unturned, they will get to know you.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you'll be interacting with them one way or another. It's much better to. That's uh, true establish an early relationship and let them know you're trying to make an honest effort to do things as best you can. Uh, Let's talk about some of the things that um, you're seeing in the lab as far as, uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about potency, but let's talk about contaminants. Um, What, first of all, what contaminants um, are you testing for um, broadly across all of the states and countries um, that you've got labs operating in? Um, and then what are the most common contaminants you're actually finding in cannabis products?
1: So in general, the cannabis contaminants that we're looking at, I won't give a complete state roll call, but in Oregon, at the very least contaminants we're looking for are, um, pesticides, um, in concentrates and flour, residual solvents in concentrates um, and then elsewhere on top of pesticides and solvents, California, Florida, et cetera um, we're also looking for heavy metals, mm-hmm. at least the big four those are mercury, cadmium, lead, arsenic, and arsenic
0: mm-hmm.
1: um And then also microbiological contaminants. Um, In in various states, those would be either E. coli and or STEC, which is uh Shiga toxin E. coli. Mm. Uh, So it's like a a sero strain of E. coli, uh Salmonella, uh Aspergillus, a number of different species required um in in Florida and, and California and uh in some other states have maybe more broader like total mold mm-hmm. count or total aerobic plate count, which would be like non specific bacteria
0: yeah
1: um and, and Canada has some regulations like that 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 really just mimic kind of food and drug right. manufacturing safety,
0: yeah, basic screens just like okay, yep. um, there are no detectable forms of basic bacteria here, so no need to really go deeper that type of classically.
1: Rationale you know the the most common uh contaminants that we find are definitely pesticides i would say four or five years ago it was like a rampant rampant thing mm-hmm. um where you know at times in oregon some times of the year we were seeing pesticide product failure rates at 20 percent or more yeah um I think the industry got a little bit of a black eye, but honestly, those rates today in Oregon, um, also in California for pesticide fails are, you know, in the two to 4% range, it's, it's It's actually fairly low. Um, and I mean, back again, back in the day, I mean, a lot of those pesticide fails were products that were, you know consciously sprayed on the material mm-hmm. either they didn't know that those materials uh, were persistent in the product or didn't care or didn't consult the list of things um, I, I don't know yeah but today mostly when we talk to clients that have pesticide fails it, it you know it it's uh, it's either a mistake or something that was overlooked or sometimes unlisted a, an unlisted product or just kind of a lack of control um, you know uh, and, and not properly trained farm technician found something maybe in the farmhouse garage instead Mm -hmm. of in the sort of validated growing area and and used it by accident or yeah, whatever. Um, sometimes agricultural overspray from, um, either neighboring cannabis farms or, um, gosh, in Florida uh, a lot of product is coming up with Malathion. Mm. Um, but there's parts of florida where helicopters fly over the um, neighborhoods um spraying malathion you know oh my in gosh. the swampy areas so yeah, if well. you're not paying attention to that in your greenhouses <laughs> uh,
0: just sucking it in and blowing it over yeah, everything yeah.
1: uh microbial oh. contaminants um at least on the salmonella e coli end, honestly we don't really see any significant failure rates uh with mm-hmm. modern you know shelf cannabis that stuff is all pretty clean. Those are contaminants generally come from manure or um, yeah. bad hand washing. And so um, in California, occasionally we do see some problems with that in manufactured or infused products mm-hmm. um, because they're, you know, I, I guess didn't wash their hands making the cupcakes oh. or whatever. Oh. <laughs> um, again, that's pretty yeah. low yeah, um, and not really a cannabis thing. Um, we do detect Aspergillus, um, um, you know, we use PCR or polymerase chain reaction as a, as a screening tool. Um, so this is a way to look for like the genetic signature of a bunch of different microbes, um, rapidly, um, in a reaction. And then if, when we do get positive hits, um, those are always confirmed by direct culture plates. mm mm-hmm. um, so aspergillus is still kind of a thing. Um, this is why a lot of states require uh, moisture, uh, moisture content measurement and or water activity measurement. This is a means of benchmarking how dry your materials mm-hmm. are and that they're cured
0: to a certain level. Um, so you don't have to worry about mold or uh, different right. types of fungi or bacteria growing out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, also, You know, while we're talking about mold and fungi, um, aspergillus and other dark-colored molds produce their own sort of form of pesticides called mycotoxins. Um, There are a number of mycotoxins that are required to be tested for, again, not yet in Oregon, Mm -hmm. um, but I would would imagine we'll see that within the next year or two. Um, To the chemists, they look much like pesticides with respect to like their you know, the, their chemistry and how you analyze them uh, on a, on a mass spec. Um, you know, but California has a specific requirement for mycotoxin testing. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I would say the failure rate for those are, uh, you know, about similar to like the mold failure rate. Those are really this, the signature Mm -hmm. of mold. Yeah, Um, but they are persistent where you probably would only find mold in cannabis flower. Um, just like pesticides, we do uh, occasionally detect mycotoxins in in more finished products, in, in resins yeah. and infused products. Well, there
0: there's mycotoxins once produced are super super stable. They're very heat tolerant. Yep. Um, even under high pressure, they seem to be able to survive. Yep. Um, those processes. Um,
1: and unlike most pesticides, like we know, uh, mycotoxins are hepatotoxic and, right. and persistently or cumulatively, um, you know, they, they cause cumulative liver damage. And yeah. so like your lifetime, uh, dose, if you will, um, matters. Uh, yeah. A lot of pesticides, you certainly don't want a lot of them in your bloodstream. Right. Unfortunately you actually do, um, from food, Yeah, but a lot of those are, you know, very well broken down um, by the liver mm-hmm. and, and, and they're generally not that toxic uh, below a certain level um that sounds funny to say but still yeah well the dose Uh, makes the poison right yeah exactly uh mycotoxins not so much yeah they 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 do cause liver damage cumulatively and so it's uh, definitely not something that you want in your food
0: yeah and they're um they're pretty carcinogenic too um from what i understand and um, it's something that, uh, when Oregon was developing the rules, I was surprised, um, that mycotoxins, um, there was discussion about it early on and then it kind of fell out. Um, but it was something that we did, you know, some work trying to look at that and, you know, we were able to confirm that like it's around for sure. Yeah. It's, it's, it's flowing around, you know, not super common but you know just in the context of public health and safety and especially with how popular extracts are getting yeah um you know just more and more and vape pens and dabbing and all this sort of thing um you know i have some pretty serious concerns about exposure to mycotoxins as well as pesticides and everything but pesticides seem to be one of the first contaminants that states catch on to that needs right. to be tested for and so there's you know a lot more control over pesticides than there are mycotoxins and it's so common for uh, producers to take uh, flour material that might be moldy or otherwise you know can't be sold as flour and to extract it and turn it into um, you know a concentrate and then sell that so uh so what about um heavy metals and cannabis products
1: You know, that when the state started passing rules about heavy metals, a lot of people speculated that it was not gonna be a thing. Um, The cannabis flower, there's all kinds of study that shows that it it can bring or at least remove uh, metals and such from the soil. Right. But if you look at those papers, not many of them actually looked at distribution of those metals in Mm -hmm. the plant and that sort of matters. So um, California started requiring metals testing um, for all products as of January 1st Uh, and so there's a nice little data set building there Um, but Florida's been doing it for quite a while and um, I I recently gave a talk uh, looking at about 7,600 metals tests, uh, of various wow. different products, um, that we've tested in, in Florida over the last couple of years. And the, the trend is, you know, I guess summarized that, um, it's, it's not very typical to find heavy metals in cannabis flower or resin. And so I think this will be borne out by some other research, but I, I have this hunch that, you know, cannabis and hemp sequester metals from soil, but it probably stays in the roots.
0: Yeah, there's there was a, there was a study that came out.
1: I'm not promising that. Yeah. And I'm not a doctor. Right, yeah.
0: <laughs> there was a study that came out fairly recently, I can't remember exactly when, um, that looked at distribution and found that definitely the concentration is higher in the roots than anywhere else. Sure. Um, which makes sense. Um,
1: but that's not to say that we don't see heavy metal failures. Exactly. And yeah. uh, actually in pretty significant quantities. Right. And So what, you know, I guess the summary of, of all that is that uh, the grow environment, the grow atmosphere... The grow materials, plus any manufacturing stuff downstream, right, right, uh, is a, a huge culprit in yeah. metals contamination.
0: Well, and and something we see in the natural products industry broadly, you know, in uh, the context of finished products, if someone's making a manufactured product with other herbs and that sort of thing, if they're not, um, even if the cannabis is coming out clean, and when I say clean. I mean, natural products broadly are going to have metals in them, and so it's really about the concentration like, right. how high is that level? It's rare to not see metals. Um, but if you're not controlling for the um, the metals concentration that is actually in other component ingredients sure. that are going into a finished product, um, then that can um, cause problems, even if you've done all this control on your cannabis,
1: absolutely. So, as a spin out of this, um You know, this is based on real data. We're starting to help um, vape pen clients uh, screen uh, vape pen or cartridge brands. Mm. Um, And we're actually pushing towards uh, standardizing or validating an an actual method for screening uh, vape pen carts. Wow. Right. Because, you know, there's different ways that if you think there's metal in there, you can put, you know, acidic water or um, um, glycerin or Mm -hmm. vegetable oil and for different time periods and temperatures. And so a lot of labs have started to look at this, um, because it's, it's sort of a big thing. I mean, I first heard of it in like 2013 or 2014, Mm -hmm. uh, Jeff Raber, uh, of, of the workshop, Uh, published some paper where they were finding heavy metals in the vapor stream of Mm. low quality vape cartridges. Um, So we've been thinking about it for a while and, and encouraging vape pen manufacturers to, you know, when they buy these materials, you know, get several different samples, um, Mm -hmm. and bring handfuls of them to the lab. And, you know, we'll wash them either with like acidic water or sometimes MCT oil. See what
0: might come through.
1: And a lot of them indeed do leach a a lot Uh, of metals and it's primarily lead. Yeah. Um, but also some mercury. Yeah. Um, We do see some arsenic fails at times, um, in cannabis and usually it comes from, um, seems like uh, you – so the story there was that we had a manufacturer or a farm, an indoor place, um, and they were anticipating uh, doing metals tests on their final stuff, and so they didn't really want to wait until the end and see, and so these guys were smart. Um, and when their, when their plants were fairly immature, just mm-hmm. at the start of the budding stage, like we um, went and collected a bunch of materials – uh, but so basically immature buds yeah. and they were loaded with arsenic. Oh, wow. Um, so that, you know, prompted a, a test of, of the soil and yep. the water and the media and everything that we could. And turns out um, at the end of that story, it was a bunch of nasty rock wool. Um, oh, wow. So it was, you know. The I initial
0: did, growth medium. That, yeah. Uh, wow.
1: Uh, it was just off the charts mm-hmm. uh, with arsenic.
0: Wow, these little things that, um, yeah, we get so focused on the actual cannabis product. Um, that's so easy to not think about that. I mean, it makes sense now that you say that. Yeah. Um, but that's something I genuinely have not ever thought about, that like rock wool, yeah, um, you know, might be a source of contamination like that.
1: But also, you know, uh, extractors and, and other manufacturers of value-added cannabis stuff, um, you know, you use... Blenders and pumps and and metal tubing to transfer materials and, um, uh, glass and other containers to store those in. And those are all potentially sources of, of heavy metals.
0: Yeah. Wow. Well, I know in California they have, um, much, um, they have pretty strict rules on heavy metals in general for, um, foods and, um, uh, consumer products compared to a lot of states. I know that a lot of um manufacturers that are trying to do production in California or trying to export to California um that that's um sort of a new thing for a lot of people that they're having to get their finished products tested for metals. Like in Oregon uh for cannabis products, the only thing you really have to get a manufactured finished product tested for is potency. Um yep, that's true. And and while you have to get the extract, you know, tested for different things um, it's still very cannabis product centric and not like food safety centric, you right. know, thinking more broadly uh, about what consumers are exposed to that may not be coming from the cannabis itself.
1: Yeah. California requires, you know, the finished package product to be tested for the entire battery. So whether you're selling yeah. flour or cupcakes, um, those all need to be tested for all the microbiology components. Um, if it has concentrate in it residual solvents and also pesticides
0: what uh what complications does that cause for the lab as far as um you know something that i've talked to other people about before is um doing that sort of testing on finished products can be fairly complicated for a lab as far as teasing out um target compounds you're trying to test for cuz it's in this like complex matrix of things that are um you know, you've got oil-soluble components and water-soluble components and mixtures in between and things that want to hold on to cannabinoids or hold on to pesticides and that sort of thing. So what sort of yeah. um, complications have you run into trying to mm. um, ensure that finished products can be tested for all of those things?
1: You know, I, I remember a few years ago, there was a, a, a few really odd, odd cannabis-infused products that would come into the lab that we would just... You know, politely decline because right, yeah. it, exactly that. You know, how are you going to test a frozen, take and bake pizza? That's exactly uh, the example I was I thinking not about. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's not. You know, not that we didn't want to. It's just a matter of uh, just it's a it's a big te- technical hurdle. Yeah. So you know, in short, mostly what a lab does is mix a sample with some solvent. Mm-hmm. Um, in an effort to leave behind the, the so-called sample and bring what you're looking to test for, say mm-hmm. pesticides, into some liquid yeah. um, that is as clean as it can be from the stuff in the sample, but still has all of any potential contaminants. And um, it turns out that that's not as straightforward as it looks and the, the the kinetics and dynamics of how that works. For example, if you want to pull pesticides off of cannabis flower to test, um, you know, when you shake that cannabis flower with a, with a solvent um, and then filter that solvent, you get pretty good recovery, if you will, of all of the contaminants that are in it. Um, because they would just rather be in the solvent than, you know, loafing on, on the the matrix as we call it. But when you go to more complex things, um, chocolate, um, coconut oil, uh, baked products with things like, uh, flour and sugar in them, those dynamics of, you know, shaking the material with the solvent and filtering it and shooting it into your machine really can break down. Um. Because like you said, um, ex- extraction is about um, getting the, the the target analytes off of mm-hmm. what they're on in the sample and into something that, that you can look at um, cleanly in your instrument. And um, it's just not that straightforward when there's a complex mixture of things like sugar and flour mm-hmm. and fats or even sticky things that contain glycerin or... Um,
0: And so to deal with that, are you just having to basically sacrifice a lot of, um, you know, like in chromatography, you have um, these columns that are fairly sensitive to whatever compounds the column is not designed um, to take. Are you just having to go through columns more frequently than you like? Because you're kind of, as a consequence, having to inject dirtier samples than you would otherwise... Yeah, definitely.
1: So we go through columns quite a bit more than, you know, like a more classical matrix lab, like an environmental lab. Um, and then, you know, we have lots of other um, procedures based on what we presume that sample matrix is, you
0: yeah.
1: know, chocolate or taffy or whatever, uh, to clean up the sample, if you will, which, with an idea of precipitating or leaving behind, um, some of the stuff, you know, gummy bears is a one that's fairly challenging. There's gelatin, which is a protein, there's sugar. Um, and, uh, it's hard to not, um, just get a slimy mess when you extract those (laughs) materials. And what we've done over time, um, is, um, in in advance of the need for compliance testing for certain matrix types, we have l- looked to build a relationship with at least one manufacturer of a particular product matrix, as we mm-hmm. call it, um, you know, and, you know, in some level of collaboration, um, spent time um, validating and, and adjusting how we extract and clean up samples. Yeah. Um, so we'll get um, you know, blank, um, gummy bears, if you will, Mm, and then actually inject them with pesticides and and things like that and in known amounts, and then, um, look at how we can recover those and, and, and get this balance of good, um, efficient recovery, but also, you know, protecting your instruments from, Mm
0: -hmm. um, sticky messes. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be, uh, yeah, It'll be interesting to see how other states onboard uh, lab testing rules and the context of those finished products and, and the methods that, that get developed. Because when we were just starting work together, I mean, there was, there was no guidance on how to handle any of that stuff. I remember yeah. spending a lot of time doing experiments with things like gummy bears and chocolate and stuff, trying to see what our recovery efficiencies were. Just so, for our own knowledge, like, well you know, how off are we when we're, right. if when we're doing this sort of stuff and how can we narrow that range? Um, it's Yeah, it's definitely more complex than I think um, labs are given credit for.
1: And sometimes it's, um, this is why you, really, you need a, a lab that you can actually have a relationship with this. You know, in the case of, you know, confections like gummy bears and hard candies, we know it's a fact that if you put, really put, 10 milligrams of THC in a gummy bear.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: No matter how we work it, it's going to come out on the instrument at best about nine. That's not to say that there's not 10 in there, but right. there is unrecoverable yeah. um, cannabinoids in that material. And it, it's not a matter of sensitivity mm-hmm. or anything like that. It's just a matter of like the, the physics and the chemistry of, of the stuff. Um, there's almost nothing you can do to get that. Um, perfectly out and so um, nonetheless if you're bringing those kind of products to market you need a lab report that says 10 and (laughs) so this is simplified but you know a lot of times um, you you need to understand and have a relationship with the lab enough that they're going to actually share with you that extraction efficiency yeah And you're going to have to formulate around that. If you're if you need a C of A that says ten, you might need to formulate at eleven point five.
0: Right. Well, and that brings up an interesting issue. Um, you know, from your perspective, then if that's the case, are there are most of the infused products on the market greater potency than what's on the label because of that?
1: There was no way I could surmise most. Right. Um,
0: Definitely some definitely some
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and it depends on the matrix I right I mean, for
1: things like coconut oil or uh, even alcohol ethanol based tinctures, you know our recovery is ninety five percent better, and so those are super accurate and not to say that gummies and confections aren't aren't accurate, but you know there's there's no magic analyzer that can see how many <laughs> THC molecules are in your gummy without. Completely deconstructing it. That's yeah, just despite how it some works. of the
0: marketing of <laughs> some of the uh, uh, technologies that are getting out there for um, like producers. But them.
1: it's true, you know. I mean, if if the lab only can get you know eighty five percent recovery from you know gummy bears, and the lab report says ten, you know that that product's going to be labeled and sold as ten. And it's possible that it has eleven or twelve in it.
0: Yeah. Um, well, and. Segueing to, you know, the next thing I wanted to get into is from your experience, seeing, you know, in multiple states and multiple countries, what cannabis products are testing out for what contaminants you're finding the potency, all these different things from your perspective. And this is a grossly oversimplified question, and I know you can't answer it simply, but from your perspective, are most cannabis products these days in regulated environments safe to consume? Ignoring things like um, issues with THC and people taking too high of a dose and that sort of thing, but just ba- from a contaminant perspective.
1: I would say, in regulated states in general, I feel pretty confident that most products you get are safe in the sense that they're, you know, probably don't have pesticides and solvents. Um, they probably are fairly consistent in their dose. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, you know, I mentioned vape pen cartridges. I mean, all you know, in California, we're required to actually extract the material out of finished vape pen cartridges. So if those oh, have metals, you'll see it. You, we will see it. Um, but in other states, you know, you would test the concentrate before it's filled into cartridges. So will I mean, never get that data. My personal choice is, uh, you know, I, I, not personally very interested in things like vape pens um really because of that
0: mm-hmm. um yeah
1: but other than that yeah i do believe that in regulated states it their products are are safer and more consistent than ever before
0: yeah well um let's change gears a little bit um away from testing and talk a little bit about um one concept, um, that I want to talk about is molecular signaling. So totally switching gears here more into your molecular biology, uh, background. Um, one thing I've been asking, um, different scientists that I've talked to is to try to describe to a lay audience, what molecular signaling is, how to conceptualize it. And, um, a lot of times when people are exposed to molecular signaling, the lock and key analogy is used. And you and I and, and with others have discussed how um, that analogy um, is really inaccurate, um, and that there's there's a lot more complexity going on with molecular signaling than the idea of you just have, let's say THC and it fits into you know this THC sort of shaped you know hole in a receptor and it causes these effects. Um, so, can you um, describe, with a lay audience in mind, um, how to think about molecular signaling and um, how the body processes compounds in general, and some of those dynamics that happen um, at the receptor level?
1: Well, the lock and key is a good analogy to start with. I mean, you know, the concept is that cells on their surface have Uh, locks, if you will. So these are proteins with, you know, different shaped pockets that Mm -hmm. are designed to sense things in their environment, in the body. most of those are um, from in the body. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, cells that line the bloodstream sense all sorts of chemistry and things and hormones and, but also nutrients and vitamins Mm -hmm. and such that are floating past it, if you will, you know, um, but also the proteins and, and locks, if you will, are surface receptors on within your tissues, all are um, also reacting to what we call the extracellular matrix, right? Mm-hmm. And this is kind of how cancer is controlled, where, um, you know, a bone cell expects its neighbor to be a bone cell and to mm-hmm. identify itself uh, as a bone cell through signaling and if something in there is not a bone cell well there's like a pretty violent reaction um, whether that's an infection or a cancerous cell Um, but the the lock and key model does come up short in that um, and you alluded to this is that there's you know with a lock and key there's one key and it will make the lock work and most signals in uh and signal transduction cascades aren't that simple uh, there's usually a number of different keys that would fit in um, and some of them would elicit either high or low bias response from that receptor or um, some of them would say turn the receptor off while the others would stimulate it and so it's a uh, it's, it's much more dynamic in that sense um, what what we do know is that most receptor types, at least in broad classes, are known what class of key, if you will, Mm -hmm. they will bind to. And then also underneath the surface of the cell, what happens in what we call signal transduction is that when a receptor is stimulated or blocked, Mm -hmm. um, on the inner surface of that receptor, um, it is connected to all of the biochemistry of the cell. And so there are pathways that are turned on Uh, so, uh, the, the, the stimulation of a receptor from the outside might turn on, uh, you know, certain compounds that migrate to the cell nucleus to turn off and on Mm. RNA and gene expression. Um, the receptors might also control things like, uh, one of the ways cells control, um, Sort of their electrical tone, if you will, is by calcium and other ions Mm -hmm. um, being pushed to either side of the membrane. So they can actually maintain an electrical potential from their outside and inside. And so these are controlled by how pumps in the cell will pump um, sodium Mm -hmm. outside of the cell and preferentially calcium in, uh, I'm sorry, um, potassium inside the cell. Um, Similar with um calcium and magnesium pumps. Um those things are all controlled by signal transduction. Um a lot of uh well some of the signal when you stimulate or block a receptor end up um suppressing certain cell effects and others turn on cell effects. One of the main ways that cells can sort of stimulate um biochemistry to happen is that um there are enzymes that are floating in the cell or ready to do work but they're inactive until they bind to a calcium ion right Mm. so there's a um, there's a way to have these enzymes made and ready to go in the cell and then uh when the enzyme needs to get turned on uh the cell will release calcium ions and those calcium ions will sort of now, bind into that enzyme and now turn it on. Wow, well, yeah, right. So almost no extracellular receptors that are tied to intracellular actions do one thing, yeah, there's almost always like a symphony of things, and sort of like the analogy that i don't, I don't know how it fits with the lock and key, but imagine um you know if you if you hear tones, um, we can describe their their notes and their volume and such. Um, and so you could imagine that you could, you know, you could have a system that was controlled by tones. Like mm-hmm. when this note is played, this happens. And when and this note this is played, volume this happens, yeah. right? Um, but then, you know, how does your model work if I give you a chord instead mm-hmm. of uh, mm-hmm. a note? And that's, that's an analogy of what's happening in signal transduction in a cell. So, um... Yeah, when a receptor is turned on or off, there is generally a cascade of several different things Mm -hmm. that happen. And then this is also dramatically different in the cell type, right? So uh, some signals will um, stimulate metabolism and gene gene production, um, say, in hepatic cells or liver cells, um, but they might completely suppress that type of activity in a cardiac myocyte.
0: Interesting, yeah.
1: Right, so the the pathways are all, I don't want to say generic, but similarly mapped out is how the chemistry and electronics work. Um, and they're definitely electronic. This is sort of, sort of micro coulomb electronics, but cells are definitely electronic, um, and so is their biochemistry. Um, yeah you know, uh, in the, an example is like a hormone, right? Uh, like a prolactin will cause a certain response in your smooth muscle cells, mm-hmm. um, compared to in central nervous system tissue and cannabinoids are much the same, you know, and I, um, there's the, the, classic cb1 and cb2 receptor um we know something about how cannabinoids bind to them Mm -hmm. um you know typically um that's a it's a binding kinetic measurement is sort of like how tightly it fits in there's
0: the chi values yeah exactly
1: um and and some receptors um will bind very very tightly um, with a ligand or, you know, in this case, what the key, what's binding mm-hmm. to it. Uh, some bind very softly. Um, some of these um, signals, the key, if you will, can be antagonistic, which means they completely turn off and block that receptor and keep it from being turned on by positive signals. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them turn on that receptor. Um, and then there's also a receptor tone, where if you... Um, and the analogy here is in your nose is like, if you repeatedly smell a strong, strong smell, Mm. this is a cyclic Mm -hmm. AMP dependent signal transduction in your nasal epithelium, um, where, um, for whatever reason, when receptors are hyper stimulated, uh, the receptors themselves tend to either get turned off or, Mm -hmm. or removed.
0: Right. Well, I know uh, from the cell, I know this happens with, um, a lot of receptor types, but, um, you know, with CB1 receptors, you know, if you're using THC-rich cannabis a lot and you're bombarding your CB1 receptors, you know, eventually they tend to uh, retreat into the cell. And then, um, you know, the cell basically recognizes that, oh, that's something we need to break apart, get rid of. Right, right. and so over time, you can deplete the concentration of CB1 receptors in your, in your brain and other tissues.
1: And these are, you know, these signal transduction elements in your body, they don't exist. Um, in they, isolation? They don't exist in isolation, and they're not just there, you know, to be manipulated by their environment. And, right. and that's why this is a, a natural homeostasis, when if you get a signal that turns on something in a cell... Um, you wouldn't want that to be turned on permanently, right? And you wouldn't want it to be turned up at a gain that's too high. And so all cells are always modulating their tone by in this fashion.
0: Yeah. Well, and it's, it's really interesting to hear you talk about how, um, the same receptor in different, um, cell types or tissue types, um, will do different things. And it highlights how, um, careful we need to be in interpreting certain forms of cannabis research that, you know, for instance, um, like cell culture studies or, you know, just exposing a cannabinoid, um, to a certain receptor in isolation and not specifying, you know, not really looking at any other dynamics other than just really basic affinity. Right. You know, you can understand the affinity that a cannabinoid or other compound, there are a lot of compounds now that uh, we're finding have affinity for cannabinoid receptors, um, like flavonoids, uh, certain terpenes and everything that um, it's just because we understand the affinity doesn't mean we necessarily understand what they're doing in the body.
1: Absolutely. Um, A lot of stuff is like that and cannabinoids very likely fit into that same paradigm. Um, Vitamin D is kind of an example of this where, you know, vitamins D's job is to put calcium into tissues. Yeah. Um, So you know, if you have calcium in your blood, then in the presence, and this is very simplified, but when there's vitamin D present, that's a signal cascade for the blood vessel epithelium to absorb that calcium Uh, out of the blood and to put it into the cells. But if you don't have calcium in your blood, say from dietary Mm -hmm. um, intake, your body has a perfectly good reservoir of calcium in its bones. And so vitamin D uh, without dietary calcium can potentially cause um, bones to release calcium out of the bone and into the bloodstream. And a little bit of that is perfectly fine. It's again, part of our homeostasis, but you know, this is an example of how, uh, You know, vitamin D can cause your blood and muscle cells to absorb calcium, but they can cause your bone to um, break down bone and release calcium. Wow, yeah. Same signal.
0: So um, kind of linking this to, you know, we were talking about um, some of the limitations of cannabis research in the context of the complexities of molecular signaling and how, um, you know, there's a lot more going on in the body than sometimes is um, made apparent in how research is communicated to the public. Um, and, you know, you described that um, the same receptor in different uh, cell types and in the context of different tissues and physiological systems will do uh, very different things. Um, you mentioned, you know, sort of dose response and how receptors do different things depending on, you um, you know, how much of a compound is binding and and what compounds binding and all of that. Um, What advice would you have for uh, people that are, you know, they're going on Google Scholar, looking up cannabis research papers, um, trying to, you know, interpret findings? Um, What advice would you have for people, um, especially a, a lay audience in reviewing research publications that talk about pharmacology and these effects and um, what some of the limitations are and yeah what should what should they be thinking about when they're reading those papers
1: Well one thing and this goes right back to you know thinking about signal transduction is that uh, a lot of science papers are um, either built on or in some cases, supported by what we call cell culture research. Yeah. Um, Usually the studies, unless they're like straight pharmacology, aren't completely about cultured cells. And so cultured cells, what I mean by that is that, um, you know, we can get bits of tissue from different animals, um, Mm -hmm. humans included, and essentially um, break them apart from their (laughs) tissue mass and, Grow them in flat-bottomed bottles with synthetic blood, if you will. Yeah. Um, and so there's all kinds of different mammalian cell lines uh, that we call them that are, you know, used for all sorts of research that relate to um, drugs, disease, environmental control, detoxication, etc. And these are very important models, um, but I think. When you when you see research, um, if it's built on or even supported by cell culture experiments, um, you know, keep that in mind. Right. So Mm -hmm. often if it's important enough, uh, a study will use several different cell line types Mm -hmm. and look for, you know, some theme um, in in whatever metabolism they're, they're looking for in those models. Um, sometimes, uh, you'll see clinical work. So like actual, you know, physiology or, um, you know, clinical outcomes, um, that maybe produce a theory that it relates to a particular tissue and, and, um, and signal. Um, and so they will try and support that hypothesis by testing that signal Mm -hmm. uh, again in a cell culture model. Um, you know, but the thing about cell culture models is, you know, until you, um, in your research mind or your research repertoire really built up a large library, if you will, of understanding um, many different cell culture lines, um, I, I, it's it's not a good idea, I think, to make lay conclusions that are based on a a single observation of a cell culture line, you know, there it's not really happening with cannabis and CB1 receptors yet, um, on this level, but if you, a little bit, but if you look at some other classical, you know, drugs or sometimes even natural products, um, ibuprofen or I mentioned berberine early, um, You can Google berberine and you can see what berberine does in dozens of different mammalian cell lines. And um, I think until you really can sort of digest uh, that, that, that host of data and and think about it scientifically, it's not a good idea to make scientific conclusions or assumptions about any one of them.
0: Well, and I think there's a lot of um, issues right now in, in, sort of clinical cannabis work um, that people are reading papers um, and drawing conclusions either from cell culture models or rodent models and saying like, okay, we understand what, you know, these cannabinoids are doing in the presence of certain receptors. We understand how it's going to affect the cell or this tissue. And thus, you know, we can extrapolate that out to medical conditions and start to make assumptions about um, what, types of chemotypes of cannabis are going to be particularly effective for different medical conditions. And while, you know, maybe eventually, um, the science will get to that point. I don't think it's there yet. Um, and it, I know you've seen, um, some of the charts that are out there that list, you know, all these cannabinoids or all these terpenes, and then all these different pharmacological effects and, uh, and then little checks, uh, what does what, and basically usually not outright saying, but implying that a consumer can look at that and say, oh, you know, I want to support bone mass. So I'm looking for, you know, CBD, or I want to, you know, try to control munchies. So I need to look for THCV, you know, these uh, different pieces that are born out of typically born out of either cell culture models or rodent models, not human trials. Um, and and that being said, there there have been some some human trials on certain um, conditions, um, but not many. And um, so one thing I, I wanted to get across to listeners is that those charts um, are really, really misleading because of the lack of context that's presented with them. And they're in like every dispensary that you go into.
1: It's true. You know, if you if you have a broken arm or, or you're... Or you're... You know, searching for a cannabis with this or that cannabinoid is isn't necessarily going to support bone health. Right. I mean, yeah. bone health is sort of a uh, like a a point of um, your body takes care of its own bone health. You can't really turn that on or off. I mean, yeah, unless you're like nutritionally starved, um, it it does it in the way that your genetics have been presented to you more than any cannabis could affect. Yeah. Um, You know, the uh, one thing that comes to mind is like, if I were to blindfold you, Jason and take you down to the symphony and uh, pull off the blindfold, maybe just for 10 or 15 seconds and then put it back on. And I would ask you to, you know, what is this? And, (laughs) you you know, if it was Beethoven's fifth, you Mm -hmm. would say um, it's, you know, the heart, the most important thing about the symphony is, you know, it's the kettle drum. Or if I did it oh, at a right, different right. time, yeah. you would say like the oboe. Right. Or that's, is that piano. Classical that music is all about yeah. like, because, you know, those are some notes or some chords, um, but it's really a symphony.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I want to start getting around to, uh, to wrapping this interview up. Um, I appreciate you being willing to give me so much of your time. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you just to deviate away from cannabis for just a second. Um, What's uh, something non-cannabis related that, as a scientist, has you excited these days that you're paying attention to, interested in?
1: Oh, I like that question. Thank you. Um, These days, uh, something scientific that I'm becoming super passionate about um, learning and... um, I guess experimenting in some fashion as well is brain EEG Mm. Um, sort of in the context of, um, well, I'm interested certainly in in how cannabis might affect that, but just more broadly um, fascinated with um, how humans are going to leverage this, this technology of like, being able to read um, electrical signals from the central nervous system and mm. i'm super fascinated uh, with um, modalities that that present it as some sort of feedback um, to you so uh, neurofeedback um, is definitely a part of um, eeg work there's a number of really high quality home user eeg instruments mm-hmm. that have come out recently. Um, quite a few of them have, um, software with, um, API interfaces that you could develop,
0: um, like apps on your phone applications
1: and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I'm definitely interested in the, the science and technology and software there. Um, and then I'm fascinated with how we can assimilate it, you know, like, um, it's, it's doesn't make sense just obviously to like see graphed waves there's not yeah. much that that can help you do but um there's some interesting ways that these can be presented back to a human in forms of feedback that are that are salient that uh, somehow could maybe drive um psychology and personality yeah. growth and development and and i'm i'm definitely in interested in that sort of uh Sort of the, the the esoteric end of kind of what that means to human personality and psychology. Yeah,
0: um, what we can actually control if we have that yeah, feedback. Yeah, so yeah.
1: Uh, I'm interested in um, mind and brain development and experimentation. Yeah, totally.
0: With technology primarily. Yeah. Uh, So one other question I wanted to ask you is, um, and we'll try to keep it brief because we've been going a little over an hour now, but um, what are two of the biggest misconceptions that you run into regularly that people have about um, either cannabis broadly or cannabis testing? Uh, One of the
1: biggest misconceptions that I think still persists is that uh, that there's a particular strain of cannabis that you should take for a particular indication. Mm. Like uh, you should smoke the one. Blue Dream if you have a sore neck, uh, but you should smoke the Blue G, uh, the OG uh, uh, for diarrhea and you should smoke <laughs> the this or that for um, a twisted ankle.
0: Yeah, well, I think some of what we discussed um, uh, in this interview is, uh, makes that, I think, pretty clear why that's problematic.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think research may eventually bear this true or not, that there's a few axes of, of perception uh, I would say, in the so-called entourage effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and then beyond that, probably most cannabis strains in your body are, um, it's fairly mysterious how uh, how they might differ from each other.
0: Right. There's an assumption that it's these days that it's all about terpenes um, that provide that those nuanced differences, but we don't really know that. Um, that that yeah certainly thing.
1: not because if you if you eat a terpene mix, um, it doesn't seem to give you the same effect as like smoking or vaping it. Yeah. I think the terpene contribution to entourage effect physiologically is entirely within the response that we refer of, to as uh, aromatherapy. Yeah, yeah. Right? Aromatherapy is is is. Um, not hokum, like when you smell mm-hmm. aromas or combinations of them, they affect your nervous tone, right. which can definitely affect sort of your immune tone mm-hmm. um, and also your mood and your are changing your mood definitely affects blood chemistry and, and immune tone. And so I don't, I don't think it's hokum at all, but I think, you know, I think the sort of the homeopathic level Mm-hmm. Uh, from a dose perspective, that you get from just smelling aromas mm-hmm. probably contributes a lot more to the entourage effect than some um, magic thing that happens. Like, yeah, you know, I think if you eat different cannabis strains and they all go into your gut, you don't see the differences that you might report if you vaped or smoked them.
0: Yeah, and uh, something that's important to tease out there too is with aromatherapy. It's been found that you know. Um, if you get a whole host of people together and you have them smell different smells, um, they're going to react differently to the same smell depending on prior experiences they've had with that smell. Uh, a common example is lavender. It's usually assumed that um, you know the smell of lavender is soothing and helps people go to sleep. But if you grew up having a negative association with the smell of lavender, uh, that is not the effect that smelling lavender is likely going to have. Um, it's true on your on your experience um and so um with terpenes and aromatherapy and that sort of thing it's um it can be very individualized and what those responses will be which then creates um greater limitations to be uh, being able to say oh if you just target this terpene profile you're likely going to experience this effect particularly when it comes to things like mood um, and like psychological effects um
1: the other one is probably not as important and it, it, I would say maybe the indica sativa thing that it's, yeah, uh yeah. it's not actually a thing.
0: Right, yeah, uh, yeah.
1: anymore. I mean, yeah. It might have been in the 70s when there were, you know, the family tree of cannabis we could still see that it came from two branches. Um, there's so much hybridization in modern cannabis. It's it's all yeah. hybrid.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, um, anyway I can, I can hear my daughter screaming in the background, so <laughs> go ahead and, <laughs> and get this wrapped up. But, uh, thank you so much for, um, carving out some time so we can hang out together and, and talk. I hope we can get together again soon. Uh, we have plenty more to talk about. Um, so I hope we can, uh, do this again and, um, get into some other interesting topics. We've only really scraped the surface of a lot of things. So, um, absolutely. Anyway, thank you for sitting down with me and, um, I'll uh, catch up with you again soon.
1: Thanks, Jason. I appreciate getting together and chatting and look forward to more of it.
0: Cool. Sounds good. All right. Thank you for listening. If you want to find out more about uh, the Curious About Cannabis podcast, you can go to cacpodcast.com or connect with us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or check out the Curious About Cannabis YouTube channel where we're posting um, video clips from some of these interviews as well as other educational content about cannabis science and uh, other cannabis topics. Uh, Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you later. Thanks, and take it easy. Bye. If you want to learn more about cannabis, you can check out the Curious About Cannabis book, available now on Amazon.com and other online book retailers. Curious About Cannabis podcast is presented by Natural Learning Enterprises, a science education company dedicated to the enhancement of public scientific literacy through education about the natural world. Curious About Cannabis is just one of several learning initiatives produced by Natural Learning Enterprises. To learn more, go to www.naturallearningenterprises.com or connect with NLE on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.